ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Sometimes the things we fear most in life end up offering the greatest gifts. Annabelle Abbs found this when she found herself confronting chronic insomnia. And if you've ever experienced it, you'll know it can leave you feeling depleted and maybe depressed. But Annabelle's sleeplessness led to some surprising discoveries, including a cohort of women she calls the night spinners, who use the early hours for reflection and study and growth. I'd be keen to hear from you about what's happened to you in the early hours of the night. Have you discovered a new self at night, different to your daytime self? That's what Annabelle says. We all have a night self. Annabelle Abbs has collated her experiences in a new book called Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night. Annabelle, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having me, Hilary. Set the scene for us a bit. When did you first start experiencing insomnia and how did it present for you? Well, my very earliest experience of insomnia was when I was pregnant with my first child. And for the next 25 years, I had sort of what I called mild and manageable insomnia. I would often wake up, I would toss and turn and fret and become anxious and eventually sort of fall back into a bit of sleep before getting up tired. But all of that turned into something completely different when uh, during the pandemic, I suffered a series of deaths that came very, very close together. There was my my stepfather, then my father, then there was a, a family puppy, and then there was another a, a friend of one of my uh, children who took his own life. And those four deaths were all completely unexpected, out of the blue. And as I said, they came in this sort of six-week period. And because I was suddenly then looking after the children, we were all in lockdown, I was looking after my two, my stepmother and my mother. Both of them were isolated and bereaved. I took it really upon myself as the oldest, as the sort of eldest daughter to try and keep everything together, to try and keep the show on the road, to organise the funerals, the obituaries, the, you know, the, the catering for everyone. And so my days were very, very busy. But at night, uh, despite being absolutely exhausted, I couldn't sleep at all. I had so many things to think about, to process. I think I was sort of trying to process the grief that I felt I could not express during the day. So how, so did, you, just, how did you tackle that, Annabelle? You know, because grief is hard enough to tackle whatever hour of the day or night it is. But, but we, we grow up thinking that we should be sleeping at night, don't we? It's kind of morally loaded. Yes, absolutely. If we don't sleep well, we're considered to be bad sleepers. But at that stage, I had two choices. One was to go to the doctor and get uh, sleeping pills. And the other was to just embrace the journey. And so I decided to embrace the journey. Uh, And I had already started researching women of the pre-sleeping pill past and looking at how they use their sleepless nights. Because, of course, women have never really slept very well. They've always had to deal with you know, births and uh, without hospitals, women always looked after the sick and the elderly. So they've had broken nights for, you know, for millennia. Um, But I also discovered this cohort of artists who decided to use their wakeful nights for something quite different. And they would wake up and use that time, you know, for themselves to do something that they couldn't do often during the day, whether that was writing or painting or embroidery, or you know, designing things, or looking at you know, looking after wildlife, or looking at the stars, 
And I decided that they they knew something that, that I could learn from. And at the same time, I, you know, I was obviously hearing all these headlines about, you know, if you don't have your eight hours sleep, you know, you will get dementia and you will, you will get type two diabetes. So I thought I'm going to investigate this. And then I started reaching out to uh, scientists and uh, neuroscientists in particular to find out, you know, what happens to our brain at night. Well, and what what does happen? I'm very keen to hear because like you, you know, my body kind of learnt to wake up very easily during the early child raising years. And I do worry about that idea that, you know, in, in later life, I won't be clearing, clearing, cleaning my neurons and my neural connections if I'm not getting enough sleep. How reassuring was it delving into the science? Well, it was very reassuring because it seems that uh, certainly women seem to be protected from some of the uh, metabolic downside of not sleeping. And this is, I was told, an evolutionary adaptation because actually, if, you know, if we hadn't been able to cope with, with sleep deprivation and broken nights, the human race would have come to an end. So, so women do have a, a certain amount of um, sort of uh, physiological resilience. Um, but the other thing I, I learned about was how, how the brain sort of rewires for, for nocturne. And I had noticed both from my own experience of being awake and from studying these other women who I called my night spinners, I had noticed that, um, you know, we, we behave differently. We think differently. I think the night self that we're all familiar with is that ruminating, anxious, uh, you know, guilt ridden, remorseful night self and, and the one that's lying there panicking about the, you know, the following day. But I learned that once I could dial that ruminating voice right down uh, all these other sort of um, ways of thinking sort of flew flew into that space. And this was clearly what was happening with a lot of the artists and the writers who were able to tap into a much more creative brain, a much more imaginative version of themselves, a more open-minded and more reflective um, version of themselves. And so this I called, I called this, this person my night self. And I, I learned to really enjoy her company. That's really interesting. We'll get into the the uh, amazing community across the millennia that you started to discover in a moment, Annabelle Abs. But I'm keen to hear some of the experiences that you opened yourself up to in the night, because some of us just lie awake in the dark, you know, jaws clenching, and others give up and read a book or make a cup of tea. What did you do to kind of embrace those hours? Well, I decided that I would do what these women of the past had done. So I looked, for example, at um, artists and they would often uh, get up and sketch. Some of them would actually get up and paint. So I did the same. I looked at astronomers, the first female astronomers, and they would obviously get up and look at the stars. So I, I went on an astronomy course and got a telescope and I would quite often do stargazing at night. I looked at the, a lot of women who wrote at night and then I would try and do the same thing. I would write, you know, poetry and lyrics and, and things that I don't write during the day. So for me, it was very important not to do the things that I do during the day, but to, you know, to try different things. Uh, one of the things that happens with this, with the sort of the brain part that goes, to, we have this brain part called the prefrontal cortex that appears to go to sleep at night. But the important thing about the prefrontal cortex, which sits just behind our forehead, is that it's the part of the brain that is really sensible, really ordered. You know, it's very rational. 
It regulates all our emotions. It's very good at judging and assessing and evaluating and doing lists and all those really important, useful things during the day. But at night, when that that bit of the brain sort of um, goes to sleep, it means that other other brain parts open, but it also means that that sort of inner critic, that little voice in our head during the day saying, oh, no, you're no good at that. That's not for you. That's not what you do. That voice is gone. So we feel um, more better better able really to experiment and do things that we wouldn't do during the day and to do them in a different way. Um, But then, of course, I also started I started going out and following in the footsteps of the women who had gone out and tracked glowworms and looked at moths. So I sort of slowly moved from being inside my house to being in my garden and then to being sort of out and about in the in the fields and the woods. That's really interesting um, because the, you write that historically uh, the night outside has been uh, seen as a male space. The night inside has been seen as a female space, women kind of doing all the household tasks and tending to people who need care, as, as you write about. What was it like for you to inhabit that traditionally male space that kind of that is so freighted with meaning, darkness, you know? Yeah, well, it was it was very it was frightening at first, but again, once I once I sort of got used to it and learned to really enjoy some of the things that happen, uh, which is you know you have a much more acute sense of smell, your hearing is more acute, compensating for your lack of vision, and you start sort of noticing plants that only only give off their perfume at night, for example, you start hearing. Uh, strange creatures that you would never hear during the day, whether they were insects or frogs or owls. And I discovered that a lot of the women of the past were very comfortable in darkness in a way that we aren't. Uh, Women like Dorothy Wordsworth were always, she was always walking at night. If you read her diary, she's always going out. She's always looking at the moon and the stars and, and listening to the sounds of the night. And that was quite common because of course no one, no one had a car so if anyone wanted to go and visit a friend or do anything, they had to walk in the dark. So there was a sense that they were much more connected to darkness and to the night sky than than we are. Uh, and I think we've become we've become much more scared of the dark because it is so bright now. You know, we don't spend much time in proper darkness. Well, yes, and you did this experiment where you forewent the, the the trappings of modern technology and the screens and the electric light. How did that go? Just using candles? Well, I mean, candles candles are lovely, and when I wake up in the night now, I will always just light a candle. But I did the experiment on my own, and that I found quite disconcerting. Um, and I, and I when I thought about this, and I started talking to anthropologists, uh, in particular one guy who had lived in the Amazon with a small group of indigenous people. He'd lived with them for 12 years. And he said, you know, no one in these communities ever slept on their own. Everyone slept together. Uh, They were horrified at the fact that, you know, someone would just sleep on their own. (laughs) So they all sleep together. And he said there were always people awake at night. So whenever he woke up in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., he said there were always a group of people, different groups of people, who had woken up and were just sitting round by the fire, you know, talking very softly, having a cup of tea or having a smoke. And he said, you know, they, they were used to sleeping with the very low, soft sound of a human voice the whole time, which I think is probably incredibly relaxing and something that, um, you know, I, I find very relaxing, which is why so many of us love an audio book when we can't sleep. 
you know, to know that there's, uh, to think that there's someone around, to be able to hear those voices is is very um, soothing. Um, but I think the way we sleep now is very, very different from how our ancestors slept. And, and perhaps we're still sort of coming to terms with that. We're speaking with Annabelle Abbs, who's the author of a book called Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night, which really makes us reconsider some of the assumptions that we have about the, I guess, the ordered way we assume we need to sleep these days. Annabelle, you also looked at that idea of biphasic sleep, didn't you? The idea that humans used to sleep in two or possibly even more phases and wake up in the middle of the night and do some things and then go back to sleep. What did you discover about uh, the evidence for that? Well, the evidence is very, very compelling. So if you look at some of the diaries, I read lots and lots of uh, of journals, diaries and letters, uh, and a lot of people would refer to having their first sleep and then they would get up and they would, you know, sometimes they would even, you know, go and have a cup of tea with a friend. You know, they would go and socialize. Sometimes they would just, you know, do some embroidery or they would pray. A lot of women prayed. And then they would refer to their second sleep and they'd go back to sleep. And then, of course, they'd, they'd wake up in the morning. So people seem to be sleeping in uh, two chunks of, you know, three to four hours with two to three hours in the middle of the night when they were very active, not lying there sort of fretting as, as we do. But, but getting up and doing things. And I also looked at monks and nuns because, of course, the, the original Catholic monks and nuns prayed every three hours. So they were always up at 3 a.m. And that 3 a.m. service was their most important and their longest service when a lot of them would you know, say that's when they felt closest to God. So I did also find the middle of the night, you know, it's a very, it's a very spiritual time when the world feels sort of quite thin, as if you could just put your arm through and be in, in another parallel universe. Well, and you looked at, at the idea that there's a peaking of dopamine during the later hours of darkness. Is that something that you experienced? Yeah, so all, all of our hormones are changing all through the night. So uh, you know, something like cortisol, which is the hormone that keeps us sort of really alert and uh, energetic, that is at its lowest point at midnight. Serotonin, the hormone that we often talk about, you know, call it the happy hormone. That one just slips away at night. So often when we wake up at night, we feel quite, you know, sad or a bit wistful or a bit, we don't usually feel really cheerful. And that's not because we're depressed um, or even because we're sad. It's just because our, our happy hormone isn't, isn't sort of circulating. It too has gone to sleep. So dopamine that also peaks in the very early hours of the morning. And that is the hormone that is often associated with behaving recklessly and creatively too, actually. So I did start to feel, you know, a little bit reckless sometimes at night. I did do a few things that probably were maybe slightly reckless. And I think that was my night self saying, come on, let me let me be who I am, which is a little bit reckless, a little bit whimsical, imaginative, empathetic. Um, So it is really a different version of ourselves if we if we go and investigate. Well, I love the bit where you write, Annabelle, that to, to desist the call of my usual trove of sleep aids was my first act of disobedience. I love this idea of rebelling against the, the imposed order of sleep time and wake time. Tell us a little bit about a, a pioneering 15th century feminist in medieval Italy that you read about, because I, I, you know, I, I think the subtitle of your book, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night, is really key there. Yeah, so Laura Ceretta is one of the first documented um, sort of insomniac women. And she suffered for terrible insomnia from about the age of eight or nine. And it was with her all her life. 
But she used those nights to, uh, first of all, to study because she was very, very busy during the day. She had to look after her, her father. You know, she was the eldest of, I think, six girls. She had to look after the household and, and you know, teach all her siblings. So nighttime was her time for studying. And she would you know, get out all her books, get her candle, and then she'd be studying uh, philosophy and theology and uh, astronomy and astrology as well. And she really developed some very, very radical ideas that I think, given that this was the 15th century in sort of papal Italy, were, were really unusual. She started questioning marriage. She started questioning why women didn't have an education. And she started writing to all the eminent thinkers in Italy, you know, saying this is this is all wrong. Women should be women should be taught. Women should be educated. Women should be have, you know, have a certain amount of freedom in their marriages. They shouldn't be treated as chattels. And she was sort of lampooned and pilloried for that. But she was a really good example of someone who at night seemed to be thinking in, again, a sort of rather reckless, um, subversive way. Um, and she really should go down in history as, as the very first feminist for these radical ideas. Well, and other radical thinkers that you, you looked into, Dorothy Parker, Fran Leibovitz, Louise Bourgeois, the artist, George Sand, Simone Weil, Madonna. There's a, quite a wide range of creatives in different areas. Uh, was there any that stood out to you in particular as, as having really tapped into that subversive creative power of the night? Yeah, I think um, I think uh, Lee Krasner, who was the wife of uh, Jackson Pollock, she was really interesting because when she was about fifty-one, she just stopped sleeping. She couldn't sleep at all. So first thing she did was she thought, "I'll I'll go and walk my dogs, and that will help me get back to sleep." But of course, it didn't. So then she decided, "Oh, I'll get up and paint." But instead of doing her usual paintings, she started to paint these huge, huge canvases, and she only used you know, two or three colours. She didn't want to paint in bright colours because it didn't feel right. But she later said in her in many interviews that the way she painted was completely different. She she even sort of held the brush differently. Everything was different about her, her painting from, from, you know, the way she dabbed with the brush to the way she jumped up at the canvas to the colours she used. And these paintings, she called them her night journeys. And in fact, they have been her sort of highest, her highest selling, highest selling paintings, um, so I was really intrigued by the way that she did something that was so completely different to her usual style and her usual palette. Though not all the, the thinkers that you looked at really loved the, the wakefulness, did they? I think Sylvia Plath struggled with it hugely. Yes. No, uh, Sylvia Plath's story is, I think, uh, you know, it's because actually being, you know, being awake night after night after night, as anyone will know, is is debilitating it's draining it's exhausting and uh, she was already suffering from a huge amount of, sort of turmoil in her life but what was interesting to me about her was that she got up and wrote poetry and her poems which again are her best known poems are so completely different from the poems that she had written before and when you read them now so I often used to read them when I was awake at night when you read them, you can see just how unfiltered they are and how raw they are and the way in which she's pairing words. I just thought those are words that you would never put together during daylight hours. So again, I was really interested in her night self and, and how she was expressing that in her, in her work.
We're speaking with Annabelle Abbs, who's done a tour of history and a, a really wide-ranging look at how different people use the night hours when they're forced to because they're awake uh, against their own will, but how people have sometimes discovered this incredibly fruitful, creative burgeoning of ideas during those dark hours as well. Is that something that's happened for you? What happens for you at night when you find yourself lying awake at 2, 3, 4 a.m.? Do you do the cup of tea? Do you jot down some thoughts? One text says, I love this outdoors at night idea, while Liz in Newtown says, walking the streets of Sydney at night when suffering from insomnia? No way. Sadly, she says, it is a male space and unsafe for women. And uh, Piri in Kettering in Tasmania says, in an evolutionary context, the very deep sleeping humans were gobbled up by a saber-toothed tiger. We aren't meant to sleep deeply all night. It's a Western construct, says Piri, and we're made to feel anxious about it. Far more worrying is the occasional poor night's sleep. Uh, That idea of how we used to sleep is something that you thought deeply about, isn't it, Annabelle? Tell us about the experience of sleeping under the stars for you. You say it's, it's quite a different kind of sleep. Oh, yeah, it's a completely different sort of sleep. And I absolutely loved it. I never thought that I would be pulling mattresses out onto my roof, but I was. Uh, once I once I had tried it, I just couldn't stop. Fortunately, it, ra- it rains here quite a lot. So there were many nights I couldn't do it. But on every sort of clear night, I would take a mattress out onto this little tiny roof terrace and I would sleep outside. And I found it very, very relaxing to look up at the stars. There was something about the, you know, the constellations and the phases of the moon and the way they just slowly changed across the night. And what I found was that I would go to sleep immediately. I would look at the stars and within a couple of minutes, I'd be fast asleep, which hadn't happened for a very long time. And then I would wake up because, you know, there are owls and there are, there's a wind, you know, there's wind and you, and you hear strange things. So you wake up, but then, you know, you just look up again and you think, oh gosh, there's Orion and Orion's moved. He's slightly, slightly over to the West now. And then you fall back asleep. So it's a quite a, it's quite a, I, I, I think I call it a sort of lacy, thin, lacy sleep because you're drifting in and out and in and out. But that was so much nicer than just being awake inside, tossing and turning and fretting. The stars were incredibly distracting because you lie there and you look at them and you, and you think about them and you think this is the same sky that my grandmother and my great grandmother and my great, great, great grandmother, they all looked up and saw these things. And that, that certainty and predictability was really necessary to me at a time of you know terrible change. Yes, uh, but I would recommend that to anyone. There's something amazing, isn't there, about being in communion with something that's much bigger and older than you when you're going through something very, very strong and uh, upsetting on a human scale. It's nice to have that perspective. Annabelle, do you still experience insomnia in that chronic way? No, no. <laughs> Once I learned to love it, of course, it went away. <laughs> as, as with all things, I suddenly thought, this is fabulous. You know, I can get so much done. I can you know, write all these lovely poems. And then, of course, I just started sleeping through the night. So every now and then I do still have periods of insomnia, but I keep a candle next to my bed. I keep an unlined notebook and a pencil. And if I haven't gone back to sleep after about 20 minutes, I light my candle. Or if my husband, my husband's there, I, I go to another room with my candle. And I just start writing in my, in my book. Sometimes I might sketch, but usually I just write poems and lyrics. And they're just for me. They're not, they're not for anyone else. They're not for publication. They're not for profit. They're just, just for me. And um, 
I find that very soothing. And then I get back into bed and I fall, I fall back to sleep and all is well. <laughs> I love that it's an unlined notebook. Take that order. I'm not I'm not subscribing to you anymore. <laughs> wonderful yeah. stuff. Annabelle, thanks so much for joining us on Life Matters today. It's been a really enlightening and interesting discussion. Some of our text messages are saying this is so fascinating and it's making people think differently about the night. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Annabelle Abbs, the author of many books, but this latest one is called Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night. And she notes, too, that the book isn't intended to provide medical guidance. Anyone with chronic insomnia uh, should consult a doctor. Um, There's a great line in the book, too, that says, take your rest when you can. And I thought, how would that complicate our economic system, I wonder, if we all did that? ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.